Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Good afternoon, John. Hey, good afternoon, Todd. I guess we got the show this week because Greg is on the road. Very good, which means we can actually exercise some discipline and do what the people have been asking. They've been asking us to not chit-chat so much. Yes, I know we're friendly and all that, but to get right down to business. And the business at hand is we're going to talk about several things. We're going to talk about the anniversary of MH370. Many of you know about this all too well. We're also going to talk about something contemporary. We have a lot of stuff going on with the various sanctions against Russia because of what's going on in Ukraine. One of the side effects might be in general aviation and that a lot of general aviation aircraft may be affected by those sanctions. We're going to talk about that a bit. And we'll end up by talking about me, which is something I don't like to do. But as many of you know, I'm getting back into flying after several decades away. And it's been an interesting journey so far. And we'll talk about that at the end. So, John, let's hear what you have to say. All right. So on the, on the uh, issue of Malaysia 370, Today is the anniversary. It's been eight years in the making, and it's sort of fallen off the, the radar in, the, in most of the world, uh, especially now with what's going on in the Ukraine. But there's still, still a lot of people over in the, in the Far East that have an interest in this. And in Australia, there is a group of pilots that have been lobbying for years uh, to to move the search area from where the Australian government and the Malaysian government have insisted on doing all this work and moving it further south where pilots believe the airplane went because of the glide and that they, they, most likely the captain was still alive. And of course, the Malaysians don't want to admit that it was the captain who did it, even though there's a preponderance of evidence that clearly indicates the captain had done it. And we are attempting to get the, uh, the spokesman for this pilot group uh, out of Australia to uh, come on the program. It's been a logistical challenge because they're 12 hours essentially different from us. So we would have to do this in the middle of the night to get, uh, get them on. But we are trying to do that as we speak. But there's a big push down in Australia again to, to get ocean infinity to go to uh, further south, 39 south, I believe it is, instead of 38 south, the latitude, to uh, 
conduct a search there. And that's where many, many, many pilots believe that's where the airplane is. And I, I made a few statements there at the, at the beginning about uh, the people that believe the pilot, uh, the leak on the FBI information on the pilot's computer. Uh, most of the most people that have looked at all the data believe it was murder suicide. So we uh, we will get to that uh, that whole issue again of 370 and see if uh, we can get new light on it based upon what these uh, pilots down in Australia have been uh, working on in uh, the discovery of information. I mean, they've got they've got a lot of information. They got disclosures from from government people that that uh, admitted that that the uh, Malaysian government told them that it was a a uh, murder suicide, even though publicly they weren't admitting that. So it's going to be interesting to see or hear how how uh, they believe it unfolded. So that that's coming up uh, in a future show. But it's clear that uh, this in, this airplane is not going to go away anytime soon. And I'd uh, like to add that um, it's been eight years, and uh, John and I and several people that we know have been involved with giving comments and very little speculation on what happened. And so an eight-year recap, the facts on the ground are few, and here is a synopsis of it. The best evidence is that the airplane was under control and went toward the middle of the Indian Ocean, a route that it's hard to do accidentally, but if you can uh, program the airplane to flight computer, it's something that's fairly straightforward, which is one of the reasons why a flight crew member or someone who's an insider is suspected as uh, having been involved in some way. There have been a few pieces of debris found on the fringes of the Indian Ocean in the, uh, I believe, Reunion Island and uh, west, excuse me, the east coast of Africa, some of which have been positively identified as being part of the aircraft. So conspiracy theories aside, something happened to the airplane. It happened in the Indian Ocean. Now, segue to our next. And the French, got, the French have collected those pieces of debris and they're not releasing them because uh, in France, aviation accidents are crimes. So it's under control of the judicial system. So they're keeping control of those bits and pieces as they found them off the French uh, co coast of those islands, which is a French possession. So they have jurisdiction over them. It will be an interesting international diplomatic process to finally finalize this investigation whenever that happens. Now, there's actually an indirect connection to our next segment. Uh, one of the sister aircraft of uh, MH370, another Malaysian Airlines 777, was actually shot down over Ukraine several months later, uh, accidentally, presumably by a uh, missile battery from the Russians. There was uh, some disturbances and basically a war going on there eight years before what's happening today in Ukraine. And fast forwarding to today, one of the issues with the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, which has been going on for about 10 days as we speak, is that there are massive sanctions against Russian airliners, uh, Russian aircraft, and entities that have control over aircraft, including some general aviation aircraft, especially uh, long distance uh, business aircraft, which may fly to and from places where they're now banned. So you not only have a situation where over the entire EU and over North America, Russian aircraft 
in aircraft controlled by Russian entities are not allowed to fly without special permission. You have a situation where all the various companies that support these aircraft, from engines to avionics to uh, maps, et cetera, they're cutting their ties with, with Russia. So there's a potential short and long-term safety issue with these aircraft, which may not be allowed to fly in certain areas. But more importantly, they may not be up to date when it comes to maintenance, when it comes to parts, when it comes to updating software, et cetera. And this is an uncharted piece of territory, but uh, John, if you can add anything to this, can you think of an equivalent situation where you have such a large number of sophisticated aircraft that are cut off from uh, maintenance and updating? Never, never had it before. You know, in years past in the Soviet Union, they used uh, Russian built aircraft, to the business leaders, all the moneyed people in that country. But now since the things, uh, the wall came down, many of those people have scattered their possessions and their wealth around Europe and, and the world. You know, there, there is uh, one of those uh, rich Russians owns a soccer team, a football team in the UK, which it just was taken away from them. And he used to fly himself uh, on his jet back and forth from uh, Russia uh, to the UK. Uh, I can remember seeing in uh, in the south of France a number of huge mans mansions, which I was told were owned by Russians. Again, all the the, uh, the Russians would that uh, have all the wealth, and they have these huge mansions located all around Europe. And uh, so those those properties are going to be seized, and the the airplanes uh, will not be, you know, they're persona non grata. So they won't be flying into those countries. In fact, the opposite has been happening. A lot of airplanes that are Russian-owned, or maybe not even Russian-owned, but Russian-operated, have been flying out. You, know, you have some details on the one coming out of uh, Egypt. Yes, there was a report a few days ago. There was a, an Aeroflot airline, I believe it was an Airbus A320 or A321, where in flight on the way to Cairo, its uh, certificate of operation and its insurance lapsed. It was, uh, well, basically it couldn't legally fly. It could land at the nearest available or next airport, but it couldn't legally take off again. But before authorities could confiscate the airplane or repossession or what have you, the airplane took off again without insurance, without a, a valid certificate of, of operation. And that has obvious implications, whether or not there were people on board or not, that aircraft could be uh, flying in such ways that are going counter to the longstanding international agreements as to how aircraft, especially international flights, should be operated. And without going into great detail, when it comes to Russian airlines, roughly half the aircraft in the Russian airline inventory are actually leased. And these leasing companies are outside in, in the US and Europe and whatnot. And those contracts have been canceled, suspended, what have you. But presumably, Roughly half the airliners being flown by Russian airlines should be returned to the leasing companies at some point in the very near future. Whether or not that happens or not, it's up for grabs. Now, another issue, getting back to the shoot down of the Malaysian airliner, one of the issues that happened then was that there was a conflict area and civil airliners were allowed to fly over that conflict area. And there's no real international authority to keep people from doing so. And there was a risk 
in doing so, and that risk ended up with an airplane being shot down. Right now, if you go to Flight Radar 24 or Flight Aware, you can look and see what's happening right now over uh, Belarus, over Ukraine, over Western Russia. Very few commercial airliners are flying. Most of those are going to be Russian airlines. So the world world's airlines have done the reasonable thing. They're completely avoiding the zone where this sort of thing may be happening. So for those of you who are flying in Europe, especially going to and from the Middle East, going from Turkey, um, the airlines are aware of this. And it's fairly clear that they're staying away from the trouble spots. However, this is a big however. No one can predict where this will go. No one can predict whether or not this will stay over Ukraine or over Russia or whether things could happen outside of those borders. And if things change, you could ch change quickly. And if it does, one would hope that the airlines of the world will see to it that their aircraft stay way the heck and gone from here. You know, I, I would like to see the condition of those airplanes when and if they ever come back out of the Soviet Union, because I suspect that they'll be in horrible shape. You know, and, uh, you know, I've seen Russian airplanes. I can remember being at the Singapore uh, air show uh, many years ago, and the, the Soviet Union had a, uh, a pretty good sized display of their airplanes out there. And I'll tell you that uh, they don't change tires until the air shows. You know, not an air show, but the air inside the tire is now ambient air because they they were just uh, worn down, pass balled pat into the into the the structure of the tire, and they were still using them. So they they uh, their idea of maintenance is considerably different than uh, most Western countries or airlines on the rest of the world. They they use things to the worn-out point before they get rid of them. Now, for the younger members of the audience, which is most of the audience at this point, uh, John and I go back far enough that we were around in aviation uh, during the time when the Soviet Union was a thing. This is years before the Berlin Wall fell, where one of the things that was a reality was that when it came to aviation, the Soviet sphere, including China and the, what used to be the Warsaw Pact, Eastern Europe, they were operating under a slightly different set of rules when it comes to aircraft design and operation. Not necessarily a bad set of rules, but because of the separation, because of the Cold War, there were almost, I would say, two very similar but distinct systems in how to design aircraft, how to operate aircraft, how to maintain aircraft. And one can make arguments one way or the other whether or not it was a safer or more risky way to operate, but no one can argue that these were the same way of operation. Some of those aircraft are still in service, although they're fewer and fewer as time goes on, especially on the civil side. But there are still ways of doing things and ways that, for example, airports were designed even that were different in the former Soviet Union than they were in the West. And some of the habits, organizational habits, haven't changed uh, fast enough for our taste. Well, I actually, before this, this uh, crisis started, I was asked to become involved with trying to get certification for the MC-21, which is a Soviet-built passenger airline, Soviet engines, but mostly Western uh, avionics, mostly. And uh, that was an ongoing project. The airplane's flying, but it was built under that system that you just described, and now trying to get it to meet the Western world's 
certification standards uh, was proving to be quite a chore. So I, I was asked to become involved with it uh, from the point of view of uh, the maintenance programs and maintenance manuals and, and uh, MELs and all the, all the maintenance things that are needed to keep an airplane flying. So the project hadn't even started yet. We've been talking about it for a couple of years and uh, it's over now. It's, uh, it's going to die for sure. So, and one, one last comparison between the two systems that uh, might be fairly obvious if you follow not necessarily aviation, but space. Um, the Russians, of course, the Soviet Union was the first to put uh, a satellite into orbit. Uh, what was it? Uh, come on now. Um, and the designer of, of that rocket system, I might be mispronouncing his name, Korolev, some of, his, uh, of those designs are distinct. The Soyuz design for the Soyuz booster, it looks like you have these four fat modules on the side and the central core. That's basically been a 60-plus year design. Some variation of that has evolved into what's launching a Soyuz uh, spacecraft to the International Space Station as we speak. You might say, well, heck, they had this design back in the 50s. Why do they still have the same basic philosophy? In my opinion, they have reasons, one of them being it works. Compare that to SpaceX. What SpaceX does with rocket boosters, completely uh, different from the philosophy of, of the old Soviet Union. For one thing, it's reusable. And another thing, it's being built uh, fairly uh, well, because it's reusable, they don't have to build hundreds of boosters to launch hundreds of missions. So does this mean that the Russian space design is old hat and uh, unsafe and shouldn't be used? Well, my point of view is it's still working, may not be economically viable, but it is workable. And I think to John's point, the same thing may apply to the aircraft design. It might be technically feasible to design an airliner in Russia, but it may not be economically feasible to go through the certification requirements and the other requirements that you would need to maintain the standards that are the norm in uh, Western Europe, Japan, Australia, US, Canada, et cetera. Yeah, one of the things that I've seen over the years with the Soviets is they don't do what we do. We make, when we, when we design a new airplane, we make uh, a good leap in technology. When the Soviets upgrade something, they, it is just that, an upgrade. If you look at their tank systems, it goes all the way back to the Second World War and their tanks, and they just keep tweaking them instead of designing from scratch. So it's, uh, it's more cost-effective but it, it has its drawbacks to our limitations, maybe not drawbacks. So it's just a difference in philosophy. Uh, their rockets are, are safe. They, in fact, I mean, I've seen uh, space launches in Russia in the middle of a blizzard, and they just launch. And I, I also was out on the West Coast when we were doing the launching off that sea launch, off that platform that left Long Beach and went out in the middle of the ocean thousand miles uh, to launch satellites in uh, from out there and those rockets would sit on that that floating platform for a long time six months a year and then they bring them up there raise them up and hit the button and away they'd go so that their technology may be old but i think it's very very reliable compared to some of the some of the things that uh, we do I mean, we just had a new rocket system 
that that had to be uh, bumped a couple of times, delayed a couple of times because at the last minute the computers sensed something was wrong. Uh, so, it, I I wouldn't say their systems are are inadequate. I would just say they're different, big time different, but they're different. Now this. Uh... This wasn't planned at all to have three segments that actually had some connective tissue between them. But speaking about Russia and in former days of Soviet Union, the last time I actually had a biennial flight review where I was actually totally certified to fly a small aircraft was 1989 when the Soviet Union still existed. The last few months, in part because of my uh, presence on the show and the influence of, of uh, John, I want to understand general aviation more. I've been using uh, my skills for airliners and the different side of aviation for several decades, but I went away from general aviation because that wasn't my professional focus. Now I have an interest and I thought rather than being an armchair theorist, I want to go back and see what it's like to fly in the 21st century. And it's been a Rip Van Winkle kind of situation in that the aircraft are largely the same. I trained on Cessna 172s then, I'm getting recertified on Cessna 172s now. But the biggest change for me and the biggest attitude change I have is that many of the things that existed in airlines, airliners rather, when I was at Boeing, the kind of flight management systems and such, the things that were, you know, modern back in the early 1980s and only on the newest airliners are now available in every general aviation aircraft out there your Cessnas, your Bonanzas, your, your uh, Pipers, et cetera. And the same kinds of technologies, in many cases, more sophisticated, are in the hands of pilots. Often, pilots who are doing single pilot IFR, completely different way of doing things from when I was around airline pilots, where there were always two people in the cockpit. There were specific roles that each person did. One person does something, the other person checks on some on that person. And each flight segment, you know, one pilot would fly, be the primary pilot on one segment, the other pilot on the other segment. Now in the general aviation world, looking at some of the accidents we've looked at in the last few months, I have a new perspective on the difficulties that a general aviation pilot faces when trying to fly. And also, in my case, difficulties of trying to learn the national airspace system, how air traffic control is done now, the fact that the VORs and NDBs I grew up with, um, many of them are no longer in use because GPS is such a real and present thing in general aviation. And although there's still a robust system of the uh, traditional technologies, it's been supplemented and some cases supplanted by the newer technology. So there's a lot going on in my head, most of which is sort of like flowing by, but some of which sticks. So how much, how much uh, digital instrumentation is in that airplane that you're learning to fly on? Well, my approach was, my goal was to get instruments, uh, get an instrument uh, rating and to do so in a glass cockpit aircraft. There's a glass cockpit Cessna at the uh, flight uh, FBO that I'm flying out of, but I'm learning, relearning the basics on the old steam gauges. So when I go over to the G1000 equipped aircraft, it's a G1000 system. Right now I'm on a uh, system that has the old steam gauges with a few bells and whistles thrown in. For example, there's a GPS in there and there is a bit of a, uh, a moving map display and such, not as big as the 
displays in the G-1000 aircraft, but the same kind of technology, same kind of GPS navigation can be used in the steam-gauged aircraft. And I'm looking at probably getting uh, my, uh, my examiner flight in the steam gauge aircraft rather than the G-1000. I might change my mind in the future, but I want to be familiar with both and I want to get my instrument ready. Tall order. It is a tall order. And, uh, you know, it's like uh, all the bad habits I used to do in my spare time, those have to fly out the window for the next few months as I do things like pass my written exam, get my hours in, understand how to train in a regular airplane, as well as doing some training in a, a fixed base simulator. I, actually, I think the simulator, the one I'm using is, is somewhat, uh, mo not full motion, but it has some motion to it. So that's another thing that I found out, that when it comes to getting your instrument rating, there are FA regulations that say you can do a certain number of hours of the 50 or so that you need to have in an approved simulator. And uh, these are not as sophisticated as the multi-million dollar simulators for an airliner, but they're good enough that the FAA will out actually allow you to use that for some of your hours and also use that to get the um, recurrent, not recurrent, what's, what's, what's the phrase for it? Have your currency updated. You can do it in a regular airplane. You can do it in a simulator. So once I get my, my certification, I'll still be doing a little bit of regular airplane, a little bit of simulator. Well, I can remember you and I out at Oshkosh when we uh, latched on to that uh, company that had their, their simulator there, and you and I uh, hogged the seat all day oh, yeah. long. And, I mean, we were in there for hours, and then, then we decided to give them a break and let them work on other customers that, that might spend some money. And we went away and came back and did it again. Now, that, that is going to be another show entirely, including one with uh, that, uh, that, that exhibitor, if we can get to him and get him on the show. But one of the things that, that interested me about that system was it used as its core the X-Plane flight uh, simulator that you can get for your PC or your Mac. Now, the X-Plane software itself is like 50 bucks or so. But to get the instrumentation, the simulated instrumentation, the foot pedals, the control wheel, et cetera, would set you back several more hundred. If you're going to have like a three screen setup, so you have somewhat of a field for a real cockpit, uh, that'll cost you several more thousand. So basically you can go 50 bucks and be real cheap and just do it keyboard controls. You can throw a couple hundred more bucks at it and have like a side stick controller and some pedals. You can go a whole hog and get something that is just short of being something that would be certified by the FAA as an aviation training device. If I remember right, the non-certified uh, computers, computer programmed simulators were like ten to twelve thousand dollars, but they jumped up to fifteen for certification. So, I'm not going to buy one of those because uh, let's just say that if I'm going to spend fifteen thousand dollars, I'm going to spend it first flying in an airplane, and then maybe if I hit the lotto, I'll buy this for my uh, home training unit. So uh, that's our. Uh, three areas we wanted to cover today. Talked about obviously my time flying and one of these days I'll have some pictures of me sweating in the cockpit. And uh, again, it'll be uh, frightening for the audience to see that. But again, relearning something after so many decades out of the cockpit is uh, kind of intimidating, but I'm getting used to it. 
and also the Russian situation, which will unfold by the time you see this video, even if it's a week later, things might be radically different. And the eighth anniversary of MH370. And I'll say this about that event, which I've been saying for years. I'm absolutely certain the aircraft, most of the wreckage will be found. I'm not certain that any of us will be alive to see it, but it's going to happen. Oh, I, I believe that it's going to be found. And, and uh, these folks down in Australia have been really uh, nose to the grindstone trying to get their government to do the right thing. So we'll see. Uh, I mean, I got an email from him last night that uh, it, it's, it's on my screen right now. And they actually had a, uh, a, he says here, a 21 and a half hour uh, meeting with uh, some of the people about what information they had on the airplane being at uh, 39 South instead of 38 South. So it'd be interesting to get them on, on the show, one or two of them, and, and see what they have to say, you know, Sometimes an, uh, an email doesn't have enough information, and, and certainly this one doesn't have enough information in it for us to do a show off of. So with that, we can, uh, can wrap this one up, and we talk about uh, we're going to do something on the Malaysia 370, and we've got a bunch of other uh, interesting accidents in the queue, many of which have come to us uh, via emails from the folks out there. Uh, listening to us. Uh, interestingly, uh, February 27th, uh, 22nd, excuse me, February 22nd, stats uh, just in yesterday. And uh, it looks like we had between uh, YouTube and the, the podcast, uh, a little bit more than 42,000 listeners. So uh, the numbers keep going up very slowly, which is a good thing very slowly and it's it's been a challenge for us to get these out every week and sometimes it's you know eight days or nine days before we get it out because of uh, logistic problems but uh, i enjoy doing them and, and it keeps me uh, focused back in on uh, on accident investigation and other issues because we're not all about just accidents we're about all sorts of issues so having said all that Todd, I want to uh, remind everybody that this show is brought to you by uh, Avemco Insurance. So if you need insurance, especially renter's insurance, which is uh, getting to be an issue, uh, give them a call, 888-879-0389. Mention the show, you'll get a discount. And I'll leave you the, the uh, last word this time. Well, my recent experience relearning how to fly uh, reminds me that what you say at the end of every show about using checklists and such is absolutely relevant and should be followed. And let's hear it one more time before we end the show. All right. And, and I had an email sent to me directly by uh, somebody that says because they because of listening, they have done it and yet they've gotten to somebody, a mechanic, I assume, that's shown them what they need to look at. And they are spending twice the time doing a pre-flight on the airplane that they did than they did before. So I was happy to hear that. So there's two things that I always say. One is if you're going to go flying, do a very thorough job of pre-planning. 
And that starts before you leave your house or your hotel room or wherever you are. You need to start thinking of getting your head in the game about where you're going to go fly. When you get to the airport, redo it again. Double check your numbers. Uh, get everything up to date. Get the weather. Not only where you are, where you're going, but in between. And, you know, have a plan. Engine failure on takeoff. Bad weather in the middle. Have a plan before you get in the airplane. And when you walk out to the airplane, do a very thorough pre-flight inspection. And if you can, touch your airplane. Move the flight controls with your hands. Uh, it, it, it pays all kinds of benefits down the road. And after you're in the air, please, please, please fly safely. Have that head on a swivel. We're going to uh, talk about our next show. We're going to talk about uh, an airplane pilot that did not have his head on the shoulders, uh, swiveling around uh, two pilots that didn't for a mid-air collision. So having said all that, please fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- 879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.